0: Love the
1: nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Quando eu
2: canto, e a chuva cai. Good
3: evening and welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. Love the Words, 5.30 every Tuesday evening. First of all, this evening we've got another of our full-length interviews with movers and shakers in the arts world. We've got Sarah Lee, who is director of the Music and Prisons Trust, the Irene Taylor Trust. They do fantastic work all around the country in prison establishments using music and words how do they do that well you'll hear um, from sarah in a few minutes after that we've got a piece of writing by martin riley playwright Um, martin is also the co-director of a live and kicking theater company they're doing some fantastic work at the moment in schools around leeds in uh, in our lockdown situation look out for that on their website they do some wonderful storytelling work all around the city Later on in Love the Words, you'll be hearing also from writers in the writing squad, young writers writing about their experience of lockdown, some really fantastic writing from them. And to finish off tonight, we've got a repeat of the podcast that we made with James Nash um, for Leeds Lit Fest earlier in the year. And thrown into that, somewhere along the way, is a brand new track from the amazing band Natural Causes, which was also made in the current circumstances um, a brilliantly philosophical and also very hooky piece of work from them first of all before we hear from sarah i'm going to play you a track that was created in a project i worked on with the irene taylor trust and i'll just give you a bit of background about that to prepare you for the interview with sarah um, I worked as a lyric writer, as a writer with the Irene Taylor Trust in three women's prisons. This was about 15 years ago now. And um, we worked with women who's, who were in prison and separated from their children. They wrote uh, a series of songs for their children in that situation. And the result was this project, Beyond the Secret Door. Secret Door. And um, you're going to hear a, a lullaby, from the album Sleep yes, sleep
2: tight, sleep, tight, eye, sleep yes, sleep.
3: welcome to Love the Words um, and welcome to this uh, series of interviews I've been doing over the last few weeks and will be doing over the next few weeks with people behind the scenes in the arts making things happen and tonight I'm going to be talking to Sarah Lee from the Irene Taylor Trust Music in Prisons. Uh, Sarah uh, and the Trust are I've been working with them on and off for the last 20 years. They're a wonderful organisation. Good evening, Sarah. Hi, Peter. So first of all, Sarah, if you'd like to tell us uh, what the Irene Taylor Trust is and what you do and how it came to be.
1: Okay, so the Irene Taylor Trust is um, a charity and it's a charity that specifically works uh, with prisoners, uh, former prisoners and also young people in challenging circumstances, And the purpose of it is to create and record the music that they want to write. So it's kind of a very practical, um, the projects are very practical and they're all based around learning instruments and, um, as I say, creating new music.
3: And I know, Sarah, that you founded the organisation. Tell us how that uh that happened?
1: Yeah I did I founded it uh, in 1995 and it's quite an interesting story actually about how it began because prior to 1995 I was actually the music teacher at Her Majesty's Prison Wormwood Scrubs and um, prior to that even I had studied clarinet at the Guildhall and it it always felt to me that there was there was something kind of missing I think really. I really enjoyed everything um, that I did at college but I'd watch my my peers locking themselves in practice rooms and preparing for auditions and I just thought to myself oh gosh there has to be more than music uh more to music than this kind of thing um and at that particular time which was back in the mid-80s there were really not that many options outside playing or teaching um and as a result of that some of the peers that I had at, at Guildhall kind of left music completely really a bit disheartened I think really that that they would given a huge amount of time to it and there was not much in way of um, ongoing opportunities. So I was really kind of fortunate because in my last year at Guildhall, I was offered the chance to take part in a course um, which started up. And the idea of the course was to take music um, out into the community to areas um, and places that couldn't get access to it. And by absolute chance, I was invited into Her Majesty's Prison Wormwood Scrubs to do a project um, with, um, with some Colleagues from Guildhall, and what an extraordinary time that was. We'd uh, we hadn't had any chance to do any kind of prep or or any visits or anything, which was unusual. And uh, we ended up just kind of guessing really what people might like to hear and the kinds of um, music that they might uh, be interested in. So we did a whole selection of stuff, but it was uh, it was so brilliant. And I think the main thing for me about that was that. And uh, there was one man in the audience who had brought a piece of music he'd never heard played to this gig, and the guy that was running the course said, "Oh, sorry, do you think you can um can you play this for this man because he's not heard it?" And uh, and I think it would be good if we could do it. So myself and a couple of other people who were doing the gig actually played this piece back to this guy, and it was extraordinary. It was a beautiful piece of folk music, and uh, as I said, he hadn't heard it before. But the way that he sat up and his this fellow kind of prisoners looked around and went, oh, we didn't know you could do that. That's fantastic. And it was just one of those moments where you actually realise that music is about being with people and doing things with people. It's not about doing things to people. So for me, that was a, that was a bit of a seminal moment. And then 11 years at the Scrubs uh, passed actually really, really quickly and we had the best time. And it was following the work that I did there that I was asked to start up the Irene Taylor Trust. Sarah, just
3: to clarify, uh, the guy in the audience who uh, had the a piece of written music? He had written that himself.
1: He had, yeah, absolutely. So he'd um, he'd never heard a music played before, but he'd been teaching himself to write music, and with the help of the Associated Board theory book, you know that 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 pink theory book that's got all that all that information in it, and uh, he just worked it out from that. You know what chords were. Um, You know how how keys worked and how sounds went up and down and everything and he'd written this beautiful piece for oboe and cello which we transposed to put on clarinet and cello and uh, it was exquisite but you know it was the whole thing about it it was about the fact the music was beautiful it was about the fact he'd never heard it before and it was about just I think what it meant to us and to his mates in the audience after playing it Sarah when you went to
3: uh, the Guildhall Uh, was community music a thing was it something that was around was it on your radar
1: no I came across it when I was there because it was um so long ago Peter that there wasn't a huge amount going on at that time this was the early 80s and um whilst whilst things were starting I suppose to develop with uh with different kinds of work in schools and everything there was nothing really that um that allowed us to really experiment uh, by taking our music to, to new situations and places that kind of all started at the beginning of the 80s I think in earnest and it was this course at Guildhall in 1984 which kind of kick-started I think a huge amount of interest and actually started pushing um, music in community settings kind of right up to the forefront. Sorry just uh, to track
3: back as well to the time you first went in to Wynwood Scrubs how did you feel they can sometimes be really uh, intimidating places uh, when you've never been in a prison before. So, how was it for you that first time you went in?
1: Well, it's it, it's it's a really interesting one to look back on, actually, because now you know I've been doing it for so long now that it kind of feels like second nature. But I do clearly remember that time, and it was more it was more a kind of excitement and a, and a wonderment because once again that early on that pe- people didn't write about stuff that went on in prisons, so it wasn't in the papers and the people that are inside of the prisons they weren't described in papers every day like they are now. it was it was just one of these kind of mysterious buildings you've quite often found in the center of cities. So it was um, yeah, it was more an exciting thing but I think we were we were kind of on the back foot a bit because we hadn't exactly been told, what we shouldn't shouldn't take in with us, so we'd all got our instrument cases, which was fine, but in the instrument cases were things like rosin for the violin players, bow screwdrivers for the clarinet, and of course you you turn off at the gate they go you can 't take that in um so it was it was just it, it just took uh, it took a long time to kind of sort that out, and once they realized one person had um, uh, those kind of things in their in their instrument cases, they looked through the whole lot. By which time of course the gig was approaching we'd lost all the rehearsal time and we actually ended up walking into the space at the same time as you saw this line of 70 men walk from d-wing into the church so we were kind of going in at the same time as them and and it's, it's another lovely thing actually because quite often with audiences i think you don't find out what they think about what you're doing because they sit there they listen hopefully they clap politely afterwards but you don't actually get any any response back aside from that but as soon as we started walking in these guys just started talking and it was so funny because they were saying oh you know what's that oh god how much is that worth Oh, what can he fit in that box when did you get that and it was just this barrage of questions and so as we were setting up they were still shouting the questions <laughs> and then I realized at that point as well it was it was actually you know because they wanted the answers they weren't they weren't out to be rude or anything they were just really interested in what we were doing and they thought the way to find out the answers was to ask questions which of course it is but in in the usual kind of etiquette with concerts and stuff you know you you don't speak during during movements and you don't do this and you don't do that but they had no idea about this which which is so refreshing to be fair because if they wanted to clap after a after a movement they did if they wanted to ask a question they did and i absolutely love that
3: so sarah after that first uh, visit to uh when scrubs with um with your with your fellow students at guildhall you ended up being there for 11 years how was that time structured were you
1: there for some of the week all of the week how did it go well to start with it was two hours a week um and then i think quickly i i got to see how it all worked and the um the amount of people that wanted to come on the class was was, was too many to fit into a was to, to fit into one evening class so I remember the education managers saying, "Oh, you know, I'm sure we could find another couple of hours, another couple of hours." And anyway, so it went from a two-hour week job to a um, to a kind of full-time job, really. And we used to do a whole load of wacky things. We did we did theory, we did bands, we did recordings, shows. You know, we used to work alongside the art and drama teachers, and uh, and we were encouraged to kind of push the boundaries as far as we could. And the governor used to say to us, "He said, look, you're here because we trust you." And if you want to do something that feels a bit kind of uh, pushing the boundaries, then just go for it because you know what the rules are. And if you need my help, you know where my room is. So that was all he had to say.
3: (laughs) So, Sarah, that touches on a really important uh, issue, which is trust. And I imagine it is really, really important to get governors on side and trusting in the work and in what you do. In order really to 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 get a foot inside in the first place how does that work
1: oh yeah absolutely um i I know from kind of experience that um if you've got a set of keys yourself you're kind of fine because you can move yourself around the building but if you're working um as we do now which is we're working in a number of prisons across the country then you do need that key person to be able to kind of help do all the logistics let you in take you to the group organize the group so you absolutely need somebody who um, is prepared to go the extra mile, really, because it's not it's not an easy thing to do to get a whole load of instruments and a, and a load of random musicians into a prison. But, you know, the, having that that one person on the ground um, who appreciates what you do and is going to be supportive is really, really important.
3: And it must help that the governors, whoever it is, who is your contact in the prison, has an understanding of the impact, uh, the potential impact of the work uh, that you're doing has on those people.
1: It definitely helps if they do, but we've we've had we've had some people who have kind of just turned up and said, "Oh, I don't know what's going on here," and they take you you they take you to the space you're working in, and you can see the penny drop when they've um, when they're watching how the thing is how the music is developing and how the, the prisoners are kind of responding to it. Um, so it's quite an interesting process really because I think it doesn't only help the people that we do this work with but it's really important for the prison as well I think because they're really kind of grey glum places and I think anything that brings it of colour is 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 such a good thing and of course you know staff walk past and they go oh it doesn't sound too bad actually or or maybe a person's having a particularly good time and he says to his landing officer come down and listen to what we're doing it's amazing so you know if you can involve staff in that way as well i think it's really good and it kind of then spreads out um around the prison just makes it a better place to be
3: so sarah um you'd been working in scrubs for 11 years um what was the next step there must have been a crucial step in setting up the trust uh, the Irene Taylor Trust, which you head up, tell us about that.
1: Okay, well, I was um, nominated for um, a, a Prison Service Award, which um, which kind of was the the catalyst for me leaving the Scrubs and going to start up an organisation. So, I was actually asked to start up the organisation by Irene Taylor's family, and the award that I was given, um, what she was instrumental in me getting that award really, and she was absolutely passionate about the role that the arts could play in rehabilitation and education of prisoners. Um, she wanted to be my mentor for the year that I had the award, but um, she got ill and um, subsequently passed away. And her family came to me and said, you know, she she really did love what you what you were doing and what you were trying to do as regards kind of supporting the people in prison. Um, and we want to do something in her memory. So would you be interested in in kind of heading up a charity? And of course, you know, as as I normally do in my life, I I say yes and then work out how to do it later.
3: Sarah, just one thing before you go on. Who was Irene Taylor, for people who don't know?
1: Well, Irene Taylor was the wife of the Lord Chief Justice, Peter Taylor, um, who who was very, very well known kind of around the time. Of the uh, He actually wrote the Hillsborough Report. Um, and Irene, his wife, had a, had a great passion. She used to work. She was an artist used to work in 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 prisons and um she was on the board of the butler trust and the butler trust gave me this award and she was just going oh my god this is such a good thing for people to to kind of have in prisons and obviously she had first-hand experience of that and she was very passionate obviously seeing what her what her husband did as well being the lord chief justice she was just very passionate that when people did find themselves in prison, that there should be something positive to aid the kind of passage out, really, I suppose.
3: So there you are, heading up this trust. Was it just you at the time, or did you have a
1: staff? It was. It was me and my living room. <laughs> that was it. In fact, strangely enough, the very same living room that I'm sitting in right now, which is kind of weird. Um, but yeah, so we had no space, we had no money, um, and it was, it was just through kind of I think, goodwill to start with. It was really, really great. We obviously had to create a trustee board. We had to devise a strategy. We had to sort fundraising. And um, we'd been given a very small donation by various people um, who wanted to donate to the trust following Irene's um, death. And we used that money, actually, to go and do a couple of projects in prisons. And I called it some favours at this point because I knew I knew how to work in prisons because I'd done it so long, but I had absolutely no idea of... Of what you had to do to kind of make a charity work over the longer term so I was uh, thankfully wise enough to know that I needed testimonies and I needed people to write and say oh this is the best thing we've ever done and oh yeah it was really great to have this in our prison so we did a couple of uh, projects and I asked in return for for delivering a project I just said look you know could you write us um, a bit of a testimony that we can use for funding Um, In the future. So they said, yeah, of course. So we got lots of feedback from the prisoners. And we got lots of really decent feedback from staff as well. We just started to build this up. And of course, then if you want to apply for money, you've actually got proof that something is happening as you do this activity with people. So it, it became something that just kind of grew and grew. And you know you just you take small steps i think and then when you don't know the answer to something you just ask people and people are very generous with their time and their experience so that's kind of how it started and how it and how it grew so
3: sarah when you go into a prison um you take in uh musicians with you who are going to be working there for the week or whatever they must have to have particular skills how do you how do you select those people to do that work
1: that's a really interesting question and and for me it's the quality of our musicians as musicians and human beings that makes this work so good so you know you can have a fantastically shiny organization, but if you haven't got the people with the with the qualities to be able to kind of do what is a really 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 difficult job um, if you haven't got people that that are able to do this, then you really haven't got an organization because the work that you that you produce won't be particularly brilliant. So I was fortunate enough, I think, to, to have a really close friend uh, at um, who kind of joined me right at the beginning on this random journey of taking music into prisons. And um, Nick and I now, now work together, we still work together. And he, he is a very inspirational person and teaches me quite a lot about, about how to be with people And teaches me a huge amount about music. So Nick has his own particular skills and qualities. And of course, other people have um, complementary skills and qualities. So the idea is is to kind of keep your eyes open, I suppose, when you're doing other work, aside from the prison staff. And all the time we're just kind of thinking, Oh, I wonder if that person would be really good at this, or I wonder if that person would suit so and so. And you just kind of work work off that. And then as the team grows bigger, everybody is is of the same mind. And they're also looking for people who who would be able to offer something wonderful to the work and also who would really enjoy doing it. So it's kind of grown quite organically, I suppose. And the majority of people that we started working with were still working with. We refresh the team as and when we can, um, through training programmes and everything, because none of us are getting any younger and the work needs to last. So, you know, we we owe it to the people that we work with to make sure that that once people move on from the organisation, that the work is still happening. So in order to do that, we have to kind of take care and train people to do it and support people to do it and just get new, younger people in to, to just enjoy the amazing um the amazing
3: work that it is so sarah you've created along with the, your colleagues in the trust and with prisoners in prisons all over the country uh, a vast quantity of music uh would you be able to uh play us uh, a track from a particular project to illustrate the kind of things that the uh, the Irene Taylor Trust Music in Prisons uh, do around the country.
1: Okay, so the first the first piece is 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 really special in quite a lot of ways. It's a piece called "Focused on the Sky," and it was a project that we did with some uh, young men in prison. They were between probably about seventeen and twenty, I'd say. And it was the first time that I'd ever seen a group. Of young men work so hard to get their lyrics to sound as perfect as they could. Um, you'll know that that when you write a lot of lyrics and um, you're working with young people, sometimes they say things that um, need, shall we say, a radio edit. Um, and we we kind of exp- we'd kind of explain to these young guys, look, you know, we're going to put this on a CD and we're going to distribute the CD and. We're going to give it to you so you can give it to your mum or your nan or your sister or your brother. And and you kind of say, you know, whatever goes on this CD is how they're going to hear you. So you have to have a think about how you want to portray yourself. So anyway, they took this really seriously. And um, the resulting song was just extraordinary, absolutely beautiful. They kept to all the rules. Um, and another wonderful thing about the piece is there was this extraordinary drummer Uh, a young man of, I think, about 17 who'd learned to play drums in church, who was really quiet. And in the introduction, she said, oh, yeah, I've played a bit of drums. And we thought, OK, played a bit of drums. And he sat behind the drum set. Oh, my goodness. Hmm. He was fantastic. And then there was another guy playing keyboards on that piece. And um, he told us at the end that it was the first ever certificate that he'd ever received. And he was almost in tears at the end um, that the certificate had been laminated, you know, and we did it because we didn't want them to get kind of uh, all messed up. And it just shows that it's not always the musical things that make the impact when you do this work. But, yeah, Focused on the Sky, um, written at HMP YOY Rochester.
4: Is another life, is a darker life, which is a harder life being Locked up in this cage with these mad thoughts, which are driving me insane. With the same routine every day And with the guys thinking that they can play Around with my life treating me just like An animal hoping that I will switch just Like a mad cannibal so they can twist me up And throw me down the block but I don't give them that satisfaction I just shrug it off like a bit of dirt On my top which yeah proper Pizzles their moth but they're not the ones That you gotta watch out it for it's the other Prisoners which are proper raw but What can I say no one will listen Cause I'm just another dog that's lost in the system baby, this is my life i I wanna
5: be I've been focused on the skywide I want to be forgiven when I die Many years of my life I've been focused on the skywide I want to be forgiven when I die Many years of my life I've been focused on the skywide Rehabilitating, patiently waiting I'm in a cell like I'm wasting Trying to reach for the pavements Physically I'm a danger to haters I'm on the road making papers, people say I'm the debaters Every day I'm looking straight to the sky Trying to pray for forgiveness, God forgive all the sinners Stuck in jail, eating ready-made dinners Going gym to get bigger, compete for the biggest. I'm on a mission, education is needed I can't be underachieving, my life is a meaning God willing, I'm forgiven, I mean it I pray for God when I'm sleeping, I don't welcome no demons Many years of my life, i folks focused on the sky, why? I want to be forgiven when I die, many years From my life situation, I was a man I believe in my early teens. Age 12 on the streets, had to rob to eat. I had clothes at least, but no home to sleep. 13, Islam really nurtured me. But as I grew, I got cold, maybe wrongfully. But now I'm 20, everything I do is good for me. Cold.
3: So I'm talking to Sarah Lee from the Irene Taylor Trust, Music in Prisons, and that was a track called Focused on the Sky. Um, Sarah, uh, obviously that was uh, with a group of, of men. Um, you obviously work in women's prisons too. So tell us a bit about working with women.
1: I think it's, oh, I, I just really love it actually. It's it's a real different kettle of fish because with um when you're working with women, you're often working with people that have not had any musical experience prior to meeting you. We find with the with the men that we work with, quite often they might have played instruments um, either in a band, in their dad's garage, or whatever, or they they've got in, they've got kind of um, a knowledge of of writing music or playing music. But it doesn't seem to to, to be the kind of thing that um, that women have done so much. And I wonder if if kind of you know growing up, there haven't actually been that many female role models who are musicians. I know that's changed quite a lot now. But maybe in the past it hasn't been that way, so it wasn't kind of seen as something that, that people could aspire to do. But um, it's, it's, it's always really great working with women because they um, you quickly find out exactly what they feel. Men quite often, in my experience, um, put on a bit of a mask and, and they, they deal very professionally with it. But women, if they don't like it, they'll tell you. If they really love it, they'll tell you. And the emotions are really, really close to the surface. So um, as a woman, going into a woman's prison, I, abs- I absolutely love it because as much as anything, you know, I look I look at these women and I just think to myself, gosh, you know, how different our lives are, I suppose. And it um, makes, me, makes me really sad, I have to say. But there's also this real joy about getting a group of women together um, who probably didn't think they could ever do anything like this never written a song never sung never sat behind a drum kit and of course as we do with the men these things kind of grow during the project and people realize amazing things about themselves um but yeah working with women it's 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 electric really
0: Adrenaline rushing, Ooh, blood air. boiling,
2: muscles tightening, heart pumping. Ooh, Spring air. is loaded, just uh, keep pulling, pulling and
6: pulling,
2: pulling until it stops. Following the road of red, pure fire. Following a road of red Following a Road of Red You are by anger, jealousy, and
7: dread is heaven and fear, my only friend.
8: Following
3: a road of red. So that was an extract from a track called Road of Red, written by um some women in in a prison uh, where I worked a few years ago with the Irene Taylor trust, Sarah, this is a really difficult question, I know, but any other projects you've talked about focused on the sky but and there are so many to choose from, but any other projects that you've done that really uh, are vivid in your memory
1: oh gosh, you know it's really hard to um to pick special projects i think as as i mean I find that each project gives A number of moments of joy and um, I think really what I really love to see is is the pride that people feel um, after they've done something that they just thought right at the beginning of the project oh I'm not going to be able to do this this is this is this is not me and you just keep pushing them you keep pushing them really gently and then as the project goes on they they see themselves succeed at something which is which is so fantastic and it's that wonderful moment when after hours of complete chaos, quite often something comes together, um, and everybody feels that moment at the same time. So, so I think really, you know, it's 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 those particular specific moments, and you'll have them in every single project you do. And sometimes they might be really quite small, but but I think you know, for for the people we work with, they're actually huge steps, like really big things because. Because I think um, the, the people that we work with have not had a huge amount of success in their life, and many of them have never been told that they're really good at something. So quite often it's the, it's the kind of chats you have a, around the times you're making the music that are the really special moments when people say, God, it's really nice to have a chat to somebody. Nobody's ever asked me these questions before. So it's a real human interaction, I think, and just, just really, really fantastic and Sarah, you talk about
3: those moments of joy within a project, but you I've always admired the way that as musicians working with people who, who don't have a lot of experience or confidence, how you wait and listen to what's going on in that space and, 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 and really are patient uh, in terms of waiting for some, that moment to happen.
1: Yeah. Do you know what? Every time we do that, there's always that tiny bit of uh, thought in the back of your mind that this is the time that that is not going to work because, because you know, when we start, when we start doing these things, it's a case of, right. Okay. We're going to go in. Then we're going to, we're going to hope that everybody picks up an instrument. Doesn't matter if they can play it. Not important at that stage. We hope everybody picks up something and we hope at that point that Somebody on the keyboard will find two chords that sound good together or somebody who's picked up the drum kit can actually hold down some kind of rhythm. But there's always that thing at the back of your mind where you're saying this could be the time that no one does that because it's that first little thing that you uh, jump on as a musician. Well, certainly the way that we work because we go in and it, our best case scenario is to do everything um guided by the people we're working with and of course we put our own kind of spin on various bits of it because we have experience and we know that certain things might sound interesting if they're if the sections come in a different order for example or if you put two keyboard tunes at the beginning of a song um but by and large you know we want we want people to kind of have their own ideas and if if there's just as i said one person that can sit behind a keyboard and play just a couple of things that sound good then one of us will just go okay guys, one sec, one sec, can you listen to whoever it is on the keyboard? Um, Can you play those two things over? And so they'll start repeating them. And then you show the drummer how the beat goes behind that. Then you show a bass player, a couple of notes they can play. And very quickly people go, oh, I see, That's that's all right, I get that. And then once we've kind of helped them construct the first song, um, it makes the rest of the songs in the set so much easier to do because people have seen the process and they're not frightened of it anymore. They realise that they don't have to be spectacularly brilliant musicians to write a really good song. So that's that's kind of how it happens. And then it develops, of course, and it moves much quicker after you've kind of done the first song. And people then start coming back on the second day and the third day with pages of lyrics they've written or or a song's worth of guitar chords for you to kind of, set lyrics to so yeah we, we we encourage them um to to just draw things out of themselves really sarah um also what's
3: great about music in prisons about the trust is is the is the way that the work has proliferated around uh the country but also abroad tell us about the the project you're doing in chicago which sounds absolutely fascinating <laughs>
1: Yeah, we were really fortunate actually to be um, invited over to work with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and also the Civic Orchestra of Chicago to um, do a number of projects um, with them. And this started back in 2013 and it it was at that time we were contacted by them um, because we had experience of doing work in prison and the the conductor of the symphony orchestra at the time made this grand statement to the press saying, I want the orchestra to take uh, its music Uh, and its players to places they've never been, including young people in prison. And of course the press went, oh, oh, how are we going to, this is really exciting. And of course then, because he would said it and the press had heard it, they had to work out how to do it. So eventually they tracked us down and um, had a long conversation with them about the work we do. And they were sufficiently interested to send a couple of people over to shadow um, one of our projects And then um, they invited us back to actually co-lead something with their musicians in um, uh, a young men's prison. So it kind of grew from that, really. And as well as doing that that work, which we still do, working in the prisons over there, we've also um, worked with them to develop um, a couple of uh, additional projects. One is a lullaby project where we work with parents um, who wouldn't probably get opportunities to do anything like this in their ordinary worlds, and um, we help them to write songs for their children. So it's called a a lullaby project, but basically we're inviting them to write songs for their kids. And more recently, over the last, I think, two or three years, we've been doing this extraordinary project where, once again, we're writing songs because songwriting is the basis of of every project um, that, that we do. But we've been writing songs with parents who have lost their children to gun crime in the city and i remember doing that for the first time a few years back and thinking oh you know i've had quite a lot of experience of working in difficult situations you know and i was wondering to myself if this would be hugely different um oh my goodness i don't think i have ever felt such a, a a massive surge of emotion as we started talking to these parents whose sons and daughters had been killed Um, in the city and I realised after about five minutes because I was leading this project that I absolutely quickly needed to compartmentalise my emotions and put them kind of sideways otherwise I would never have got through that project Um, but it was it was truly beautiful and um, we were working with the orchestral musicians as well to um, support them to help us write the tunes for the parents and uh, it was it was beautiful but it just shows I think that No matter who you are or what you've been through, music is something that we all have as part of our lives. And whether or not we like the same bands, whether or not we enjoy any of the same music or we come from any of the same backgrounds, you know, it's a real great thing to sit down with people and learn what they like. And music above, I think, most other art forms, maybe all other art forms, certainly for me, is something that you can always um, bond with somebody over. And that's that's absolutely
3: why I love doing it. Sorry, I have I have to ask this um, question, and um, it's it's an obvious one, really. But I suppose some people would ask it. A lot of money goes into these projects and funding them. Um, what is the impact, if you can measure it at all, in terms of of prisoners not coming back to jail? What what is what impact can it have on a prisoner in terms of keeping them out of jail uh, in in the future? Hmm.
1: It's it's a it's a valid it's a valid question and and I, I just I, I just see um, this this as a kind of big picture of um, our communities and the fact that everybody is going to be released at some point back into the communities and they could be any of our neighbours um, in due course and I would far prefer that anybody who'd found themselves um, serving a prison sentence for however long, doesn't matter how long, actually came out feeling as though they had more options and choices once they'd been released. And, you know, music isn't for everybody. um, But music is something I think that allows you to dig really deep and to ask questions of yourself, especially when you're writing lyrics. And I just think it's a really good way to get a story out and a really good way to start to work out maybe what might have happened, what went wrong, what you might do again uh, differently, perhaps, I suppose. But, you know, we've we've kind of made it our business, really, I suppose, not only to work with people in prison, but also when they're released, we support them on um, on a project we have called Sounding Out. And the idea is that we we continue the music work with them, but we also do kind of additional work where we train them to be part of our musical team. So then they then come and work um, delivering projects when we work with young people um, in challenging circumstances. So what we're, what we're trying to do is is as well as work inside to kind of carry that work outside, because it's a very deep dark hole when people get released from prison and it's, very difficult not to fall into that hole for so many people because the support is not really there. Um, so if we can just do our small bit to keep a certain number, and it is only a small number, but if we can keep those people out and we can keep them occupied and we can keep them kind of, kind of, um, I, su- I suppose we can just keep them questioning things and keep them um, interested and enthused and engaged, then I think there's a very good chance as time goes on that you'll become less likely to go back to
3: crime
1: finally sarah
3: uh we have to leave you in a minute but um another question i have to ask we're in a global pandemic a lot of what you do relies on being in a room with people how is the organization faring and and how's the future looking <sighs>
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's um, it's it's been a tough time, to be fair, because the majority of our work, in fact, all our work is based on being in a space with people. And that's how the best work is created, really, because, you know, when you're with somebody, you can address things that come up. You can stand next to somebody to show them how to play a bass guitar. And the whole thing is kind of done in a group scenario. So obviously, um, for the last 10 or 12 weeks and probably for the foreseeable future, um, that won't be an option to us. So we've managed to redevise some of our programs and kind of put them online or make them remote programs. So with our former prisoners and our young people, we're able to do things kind of online with our musicians. We can still write um, music with them, although kind of not in person. Um, but with the people in prison, we've we've devised a playlists project. So we got each of our our musicians to um, come up with a playlist with a particular genre in mind. And the idea is just to keep people kind of engaged in music, really. So we send these these CDs around the prison system and people are encouraged to listen to them, to answer questions about the, um, the music they're hearing. And then every couple of weeks we send a different genre in. So the idea is to kind of expand people's knowledge at the same time as kind of giving them something quite purposeful to do um at a time which is really really difficult for them i think but yeah so most of it's online and it feels so different but it's infinitely better than nothing um hopefully there will be a point where we can actually be with people again though whether we can be with such large numbers is is something that's kind of um you know question of questionable at the moment i think but i suppose my my overriding feeling about this is that i i have a really strong sense that everybody can achieve something remarkable and these people just need the opportunity and to see that opportunity really I think and to be brave enough to go for it whether that's joining us online or whether that's going to be um, joining us in a project at some point but you know it's it's just about helping people do things that make them feel really really good about themselves.
3: Give us another piece of music please from the project one of the projects that you've been involved with over the years.
1: Okay this is this is another I mean, I've got thousands of very special pieces of music, but this is another piece of music that's really special to me. Um, it's a track called System, and it was actually the first track we ever wrote with our former um, former prisoner band. So this Sounding Out programme we do, um, we'd invited a group of prisoners to come and kind of be part of this this inaugural programme. And it suddenly dawned on me that, of course, they don't have to turn up to this, do they, because they're not in prison anymore, Um that they don't have to kind of come all the way across London or down from Birmingham to be part of this band. And I was so worried that we put all this kind of um, effort and and kind of finances into this. And, and somebody might just go, oh, no, I was a bit tired. I didn't want to come. But they all rocked up. And anyway, this was the first piece the first band ever wrote. And I remember it as it was kind of growing and coming to light and people knew something really exciting was about to happen. And um, it, still, it still remains one of my favourite pieces that I've ever written. So, yeah, a track called System. And the band at the time was called Platform 7. So thank you so much, Sarah Lee, for
3: talking to us uh, today. Thank you, Sarah.
1: Pleasure, Peter. Thanks ever so much. <laughs>
9: To make you understand with you by my side I saw the promised land trying to make some changes to be a better man and the truth be told I have you to thank but yet you say you won't work on us the feelings I have no one can touch I know what I know but I don't have it Sus. now I'm stuck in a place not a soul that I trust with my love spirit heart all crushed I've got to get you out of my system got me here wishing Back then I wouldn't listen, maybe now I wouldn't be in this position Down and out, fully missing I guess it's proof that love is also oh so blind But also oh special and hard to find Wanna go back to the dead like a cool your mind I can't, I can't get you out of my system I can't, I can't
7: get you out of my system So I'm blocking you out, there's only one way up when you get down I can't, I can't get you out of my system On the phone, I hear your voice, it reminds me of home I need you to wake up and smell the coffee Cause when you had me, you didn't wanna treat me properly Now that you can't have me Non-stop calls wanna tell me that you love me, boy My time is precious and I ain't got no more for you, you, you Time to move on from the past Pain and the drama, that's you, you, you you everything I had, and all I wanted was for you to be, be true, 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 true. And there's something that you couldn't do. I got you out of my system, that's something that you need to do, 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 do. do. Something's happening to me, I can help it.
4: Love the haiku,
0: love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM.
10: Hello, Uh, my name's uh, Martin Riley. I'm a writer. Um, I was brought up in London. I lived most of my life in Yorkshire. Uh, Cockney mum, uh, Cumbrian Irish father. So if I sound a bit mixed, it's because I am a bit mixed. Um, In the 80s, I was living in Leeds and uh, me and my uh, mate Jack Glover, we were part of a a band uh, a music theatre band called uh, Local Brew Song and Dance, performed a lot in Leeds pubs uh, sponsored by Tetley's at one time not the Arts Council and I was around his house uh, just before the uh, coronavirus around Jack Glover's house and we were talking about the old days. Um, we'd done a lot of things together you know we'd uh, pantos, music theatre, oratorios and we were talking about um, how we used to make things which was uh, We thought our inspiration came a lot from uh, beer and uh, fags, but uh, they didn't. We used to just sit around and go, what's going on round here? Um, And we were doing that again. We were talking about cafe culture. You know, remember cafes where people used to sit in cafes? And they will again. And how different it was from pub culture, a very different kind of thing. And we were also talking, because we're getting on, about mortality and the fragility of human existence. And... um, uh, different ways of facing up to or avoiding it you know one of the things is that uh, thing you do uh, you know when you work in a factory or you're in school or something there's a foreman or the teacher's about to come around and go look busy look busy uh, here comes the foreman and there's a kind of idea that if you look busy you won't get a tap on the shoulder by uh, the man with the scythe old boney and we were talking about oh yeah you know dodging around cafes keeping busy and Jack started playing some bluesy music Um, He's very good at all that and uh, I'm listening to the music and our talk and uh, got some inspiration from that and that's where this uh, piece came from. Of course, in the meantime, coronavirus struck and made some of it rather pertinent Um, and I kept cracking away at uh, writing it. It became a bit ancient mariner, you know. Uh, It grew. People that know me know things get longer, never get shorter. And it's got that sort of ancient mariner feel about it, which is that the resolution in the end comes from uh, acceptance and forgiveness. That's how you buy your time rather than by dashing about. And um, probably the piece is uh, channelling uh, what I like to think of as the dark side of Ian Macmillan. I used to know him in his early days when he uh, went around with the Circus of Poets based in uh, Bransley and doing stuff in Doncaster and around there as well. So I hope he gets a chance to listen to this. And uh, C.C.V agrees with me. So here we are, uh, the Ballad of the Bean. Ballad of the Bean Woke up this morning, Must have woken up at least three times before. It was the dark before dawn, Couldn't lie there in me dirty sheets no more. Put the radio on, Filled my head with the weather and the news, Most of it bad, but it drives away the lonesome blues. Brewed some coffee, burnt some toast, cooked some porridge because it's good for you. Went on Facebook, did some emails, looked around for something else to do. Watered house plants, fed the cat, played a tune and paid some bills. And then I checked a clock in the kitchen. Only 27 minutes past 10. And then I knew, I knew for sure, as I watched it ticky-tocking, I foresaw that today will be the day when old Bony would come knocking at my door with his scythe and sickly grin. Quick, 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 I had to get away to where old-time outlaws hide out. Not in bars or tap rooms these days. The cafe. Raggy Bony has my number. Got to keep right out of his way. Better make out like I'm busy. Got its curtains for me today. Doing nothing like something on the run from cafe to cafe. Community centre, you get treated sugar sweet in there by the girl behind the counter with her piercings, tats and purple hair. Buy a brew, pick up a paper, prop it open like I'm reading the news, stretch my legs, rest my eyes on the headlines and get ready for a snooze. Big mistake, another riot, neo-Nazis on the streets again, New attacks on recent immigrants. Damn it. Now I'm wide awake. And then I hear a weeping and a wailing. Well, no wonder. But that isn't what it's for. Here come the mothers and their babies in a wagon train of buggies through the door. Just as I read that they've elected good King Herod for another term this year. That, with the racket that they're making, means there's no chance I'll be safe around here. Raggy-boney has my number, gotta keep right out of his way. Better make out like I'm busy, or it's curtains for me today. Doing nothing like something, on the run from café to café. In a world that's looking bleaker, by the second feeling weaker, will I find some Swedish fika in the café Kalanika? Coffee in a retro beaker, it's fair trade from Tanganyika, served by Eric and Enrica. Los baristas Exotica, with an arvo toast paprika, at ten pounds a bloody cheeker, No change for a refuge seeker in the Café Kalanica. All around me, city hipsters keeping track of their online business. Clicky, clicky, clack, go their laptops while they Twitter on their phones. Or is what I hear the rattle of dry bones? Has the reaper hacked into each Macbook Pro? A zombie apolocalypse? Oh no, an online meeting of the living dead. Better find some other place to hide my head. Raggy Boney has my number. Gotta keep right out of his way. Better make out like I'm busy. Or it's curtains for me today. Doing nothing like something. On the run from cafe to cafe. Scorpio and panic rising, need to find a safe house soon, somewhere super comfy cosy, like my local greasy spoon. In I go, then look around me. Oh, heck, now what have I done? Without a high-fizz jacket, I stick out like a sore thumb. And is that double extra English breakfast that I smell? Full fat Monty, plus a fried slice. 12.7 HDL. Bad cholesterol and carbo. Heart attacking hounds of hell. Better run, their master Boney will be here for sure as well. Raggy Boney has my number. Gotta keep right out of his way. Better make out like I'm busy or it's curtains for me today. Doing nothing like something on the run from cafe to cafe. Next stop. The artsy-fartsy where I buy some batik socks, then pretend to be a tourist in that cool place by the docks, followed by Victoria sponge cake and a pot of Yorkshire tea at the cafe chintzy Wincy, always 1953, and where crying in the chapel sounds a death knell in my ear. Next up will be your cheating heart, after have to get out of here. But where to now? End of the day. Time to pick somewhere quick and lie low. Pret, Nero, Starbucks or Costa. Whichever is first to show. Raggy Boney has my number. Gotta keep right out of his way. Better make out like I'm busy or it's curtains for me today. Doing nothing like something on the run from cafe to cafe. Eureka! It's Costa. A clone, it's true but you'll always find one around. Quick as a flash, I'm in through the door to be met with a wall of sound. Students, office workers, families, doing 80 decibel chat, while one table sings, Happy Birthday! Two lovers are having a spat. A school kid screams out with laughter. Some dickhead shouts into his phone as the busker by the entrance blasts a tune on her saxophone. So a stress is high, and the queue is long. There's a new trainee on tonight, tall and dark-eyed and pale of face, and something about her not right. She pours the white froth on my coffee, some chocolate on top. Then I see that instead of a heart or three coffee beans, there's a chocolate skull grinning at me. So, would I like something to go with that, a pastry? A muffin? A cake? Or... What did she say? Salted caramel? Feel my legs starting to ache. Feel something sticky on its way up, en route to assault my brain. A cerebrovascular croissant with jam. Time to get moving again. Raggy Boney has my number. Gotta keep right out of his way. Better make out like I'm busy or it's curtains for me today doing nothing like something, on the run from cafe to cafe. Where am I? Somehow I seem to recall, tucked away down a lane near here. Sticky carpet, a snooker table, no frills, no thrills, but they sell cheap beer. A kind of old-fashioned working men's club. Every year it shuts down, almost. Then committee have a few drinks and decide... Not quite ready to give up the ghost. Up the steps in I stumble, murky in here, must be keeping electric bills low, but as I get used to the half-light I see some faces emerge that I know. Isn't that Ken? We used to go climbing, and Suki who sang with our choir, Naomi who rode an old Harley, and Bob who believed Bowie was the messiah so many old friends, some I've not seen for years, old flames and some old foes as well. Shafiq, we fell out, reason why I forget, so I give him a hug. What the hell? Then I spy someone over his shoulder. Shafiq says, is there something amiss? You look like you've just seen a ghost. And I sigh and say, well, it's like this. Raggy Boney has my number. Got to keep right out of his way but make out like I'm busy or it's curtains for me today, doing nothing like something on the run from cafe to cafe. Then Shafi steps off to one side, and I see who's walked in through the door. Got no bones about him. Well, that's a relief, but I've seen that face somewhere before. So I say, do I know you? Know me, he says, with a grin. I'm your oldest friend, I was with you at your beginning, and I'll be there again at your end. And he gives me a wink, and big mistake. Like a fool I look into his eye, and I see the Alpha and Omega, with no rum for reasons why. I see a double espresso black hole, and our Milky Way swirling around, and the living beams that grow from the earth, to be sun-dried, and roasted, and ground. That's it. I freak out. I'm here, and I'm gone. But he says, there's nothing to fear. In the end, it's all one. But I thought, just for now, we could play a little snooker here. Then he orders around and we all relax. And I soon settle into me game. And as you might guess, I am here. To report that I beat death that day by one frame. So next time Boney as my number, still I'm going to keep out of his way, make out like I'm soupy busy, because it's curtains for me one day, doing nothing like something on the run from cafe to cafe. <laughs>
0: Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words. From ELFM.
3: So, thank you so much to Martin Riley for that piece. Uh, Martin Riley, as I said earlier, is co-director of Alive and Kicking Theatre Company. They're doing some wonderful work at the moment in schools around Leeds, um, remotely, but importantly, under lockdown. So um, now we're going to hear that track from Natural Causes, a band I very much uh, enjoy. uh, Well, they're a whole mixture of people. Uh, Hugh Nankerville, who many people up here will have heard of, musician now based in Torquay but all sorts of other people, Graham Browning included in this, um, all working together on this wonderful new piece.
11: The sun burns a hole In my room, Which I sell to the government It's a no-brainer, says the herring As I pocket the cash The cash burns a hole In my pocket Which I sell on the internet Maybe storage Or memorabilia I saw a cigarette The cigarette burns a hole in my leg I sell to a dating agency for use as a prophylactic against harm down to the highest bidder for a taper trail of vapour fading across the sky My room.
8: Hello, you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM with me, Charlotte Carrick. Today we have work from Eva Inman, Laura Attrich, Lydia Allison and Steve Durden, who is the director of The Writing Squad. And like I mentioned last week, this part of Love the Words will concentrate on Staying Home, which is a digital archive from Squad writers who have been recording their daily experiences during lockdown. And if you're wondering what The Writing Squad is, it exists to develop the next generation of writers in the north of England. You can find out more at thewritingsquad.com. First, here's Aoife.
4: I must level with you, level with the British public. In the days before the world shuts down, my grandmother dies. While you are filling trolleys with toilet paper and dried lentils, we hold her hands folded like origami swans in our laps. We wait, we watch the passing of time, stare as it hollows out the day. For the moment, things are as they have been, her dying is an oasis, too up, two down, on the kitchen wall a shopping list, unfinished curls in the dampness of too many bodies under one roof, as if her living is only paused, as if time itself has stretched so thin the hours become transparent. Many families, many more families, will lose loved ones before their time. She asks for cups of tea until the words swell and lose their form, their sound. Until there are no more sentences or syllables white china mugs their surfaces cloudy rest on the window sills. they chart her journey from kitchen to bedroom and we leave them there scattered overnight like breadcrumbs in the hope she will return as of 9am on monday the 16th of march the window in her bedroom looks out over a park and a wide lake there are canadian geese on the water now and spring is on the turn Planes have stopped flying overhead. She has lived here almost her entire life, observed so much change in one vessel. We stand beside the window and wonder if we will ever stay put long enough to find a view we can know every inch of. We must apply downward pressure, further downward pressure. Her dying arrives quickly. It trips us over in its haste to enter in the room, but her leaving, that is slow and incremental long nights, lost vision, morphine swimming through her veins delicate as eggshells. This is something I didn't understand before, the way the world will slip away from her body first and not the other way
8: around. We aim to flatten the curve. Thank you for sharing that with us, Aoife. Aoife is a writer specialising in literary short fiction and prose. In 2018, her short story In the Mountain Lives a Woman was shortlisted for the International V.S. Pritchett Award. The same year, she won the Rydell Book Festival Short Story Prize, judged by Chris Power, with her story Root of Flight. Over the past two years, Aoife's writing has also been published in three short fiction anthologies, Electric Reads, New Binary Press... Blackform Press, as well as in a variety of online journals and magazines. Next, we're going to hear from Lydia Allison. Lydia is also a squad writer. She's a poet, writing facilitator, creative mentor, and tutor. She lived in China for a year where she taught English before coming back to do an MA in poetry at Manchester Writing School. She is also a graduate of the Writing Squad and has appeared a number of times in print and online. She enjoys a range of modern and contemporary writers. Her other favourite things in life are the Yorkshire countryside and cake for breakfast. Let's have a listen.
12: So at the start of lockdown, it was still LEN, which I usually uh, kind of do or take part in in some capacity, so I'll normally give something up. And that's what I was doing, giving up all nice things that I like to eat. Um, And that it was still that period when lockdown was put in place, so I felt a bit more challenged and this poem is about that. Lent 2020. When the world changed I did not want to give up giving up. Licorice torpedoes, nan's parking, brownies cut exact by weight, fizzy rainbows, dolly mix, my best mate's pecan coffee cake, hot chocolate, chocolate, squares of dark good stuff plus crunches, buenos, Reese's cups, Weeks at work, dodging the office biscuit tin, replacing that with fruit and nuts and cups of tea. For what? To show I could. Halfway through and things got bad. The fearful buying of eggs, spaghetti, flour. The stocking up, the locking in. Long days spent with stocks of sweets and little wine and no sex. Advised to let the sun come through but not go out. Police cars, phone calls, distant as the moon but ten minutes away. How can you make memories in this? This fast is a giving up of days. I decide then, whatever years lay ahead, I know I will not test myself again. So I, like everyone, I think, have found it really difficult to be away from my family, especially those who are quite vulnerable, and this is about the sort of distant observations and encounters that you can still sort of have with them, and it's called Essentials. I've done the Essentials shop and slipped through the side gate. The metal prop holds up a line with three pairs of pyjamas. The flowers are bright and disorderly, slug pellets gather in the crooks of leaves, crusts of bread on the grass. The sound of screaming like children, two magpies, one caught in the gutter of the house next door. I watch and another bird comes and the head snap forward and Dad calls from an upstairs window. They're killing it, don't watch! I look at him and he keeps watching. Two more birds fly over, so I turn back. They can't be killing it. They cannot be. They're helping it. They're helping it, I say, like a prayer. Then louder. They are funerals. Funerals. They can't be killing it. They are. They are. I look at him. Oh, they're not. I turn back and they've scattered. Scraps of black against the sky in silence. I turn again, he says. Ah, oh, they're not like that, really. He asks if I'll catch the money, which he drops before I answer. A paper 20 and a plastic 5. They're not taking these much more, you know, I say, but it doesn't matter. I hear Dad through the glass, explaining what happened with the birds to Nan. I stay inside the gate longer than I ought to. As I drive home, I think about magpies and whatever I was on about, as if grief could make you good, as if funerals proved that.
8: Lydia Allison there with her work from staying home. Next up we have Steve Dearden. Steve is the director of The Writing Squad. He ensures everything runs smoothly while providing some one-to-one support and producing the squad's creative adventures. He is a published prose writer and a producer of his own projects and for others. He works with a range of cultural clients on projects, businesses and organisational development. He's worked as director of Ilkley Literature Festival regionally as Literature Officer for Yorkshire Arts and led the National Association for Literature Development. If you would like to learn more about Steve, you can do at stevedarden.com. Now let's take a listen.
13: Live theatre. My wife runs two of Manchester's commercial theatres. One of the jobs in a dark theatre is regularly checking that all the things that are supposed to be on are on and all the things that are supposed to be off are off. The venues are part of an international group and someone at central office where people monitor these things has noticed a huge spike in one of the theatre's electricity usage at three o'clock on Saturday afternoons. So this Saturday my wife and her colleague checked this out. One went to the cubby hole where the metres are, the other waited on the roof for the air conditioning to kick in. You and I know that they went to the wrong places. When my wife moved to run the palace and the opera house, lots of people who I didn't associate with going to the theatre said, my God, I went to this or that show there, you should have seen it. And lots of people who I did associate with going to the theatre said, that's where I saw my first opera or ballet or musical. One pantomime, Ken Dodd whacked dough out into the auditorium with a cricket bat and a lump landed on my mum's shoe. She was going to the loo at the time. was very cross the mark was still there when we got home. Now when I see shows, I'm staggered at just how good everyone is, all the way from the star to the people who play all the bit parts and come on first to bow. None of them seems to be wondering whether they can be bothered to turn up today, and just the sheer energy it must take, six nights and two matinees, eight premiership games a week. I know you know this. You'd be with me Saturday, Not in the cubby hole or crouched on the roof, waiting to see if the air conditioning kicked in. We'd be in row H of the stalls. As a minute before three o'clock, the auditorium lights glow, flicker, dim. And the first, the safety screen, and then the red curtain go up. Stage lights warm the psych from the last show you saw. Backdrops fly in, fly out, trucks roll on, off. The trap falls, the orchestra prick glows. The stage bathes in massive washes of colour and then at the end, a single spot. The curtain falls. Rapturous applause. None now, of course. We imagine that. It's just us, clapping, standing, ovation. And the building, breathing, having fun. They miss it, up on the roof, away in the cubby hole. The air conditioning didn't kick in. The transformers didn't hum. The meter didn't even flicker.
8: I can't quite imagine going to a theatre right now. It seems so strange. Thank you, Steve, for that contribution. We'll be hearing from Steve again later on in the show. Next, we're gonna have a poem now by Laura Attridge.
0: Photo booth for Beau. When we first met, You were a sonogram sent to me by your mother via online messenger. Soon, you were a series of selfies she took in a full length mirror to show off her magnificently developing belly. Since November, you have been gracing social media as you grow bigger and bigger into yourself, finding your way in a strange world outside the womb. Parents for a compass, a star chart, a sail. Once, before you, your mum and I went to Brighton, seeking ice cream and new tattoos. We found a photo booth in the back of a vast bric-a-brac shop, captured ourselves laughing four ways in black and white. I tell you this because it happened, because for a little while longer you must remain a series of images and memories of images until it is declared safe to travel the miles to hold you, to cry a little. And I tell you, because you are here in these times, but you will not remember, although I will, that it was a long wait before we really met, but that the wait was worth it and will never be so long again.
8: Laura is ever wowing us with her heartfelt poetry there. What a lovely thing to look forward to. A big thank you to all of our writers today who contributed, Aoife, Lydia, Steve and Laura. Hopefully we will continue to occupy the airwaves with writing that reflects this time. Let's finish now with another piece from Steve Durden.
13: Test flight. Cycling around Manchester airport, the world sounds like when I was a kid, just field noise, birdsong, empty blue sky. We called the airport ringway then. I'd ride out here, wait all morning, and if I was lucky, see one jet land. This morning, no planes land and one takes off. The shuttle to Heathrow. The only other time so quiet was during the ash cloud that grounded all the flights after the volcano erupted in Iceland. We were on holiday and Paris was busy, but being someone who always has to look up at every plane, I was in my own silent bubble of wide blue sky. Not a single contrail. After a few days, we gave up with the airline and decided to make our own way home. On the cross-channel ferry, we met a woman who had spent a week hitchhiking from Moscow, guys who had commandeered a North African minibus to drive their families up through Spain. They asked, how about you? And we felt frauds, non-participants in this national emergency, saying, actually, we left this morning, got a train and a bus, stopped in Rouen for lunch. The night before we left Paris, we read in the newspaper that the government was going to send up a test flight to see if the invisible cloud was safe to fly through. That evening, we went up the Eiffel Tower at sunset. A single jet trail cut from the dark red horizon into the luminous blue. People pointed and shouted out, It's the test plane, it's the test plane, like it was the first flight ever. A wonder. Whatever the test plane discovered kept flights grounded. Cycling home, I wonder what the first total feeling will be when lockdown is over. Maybe the sound of a vehicle drawing up outside the house that's my dad and not a DPD delivery van. Or walking into the smell and clatter of a bar. Planes going over again one after the other. Or getting off a train and seeing you waiting the other side of the barrier.
8: Staying home was brought to you by the writing squad on East Leeds FM. Till next time, stay safe and take care. Love the control. Love the command.
1: Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the
2: words from East Leeds FM. Come out the way. came by on the way Said she had a word to say About things today And fallen leaves Said she hadn't heard the news
3: So welcome to The Fifth of these writer profile podcasts for Leeds Lit Fest and well we're in a very beautiful place actually it's one of my my favorite places too but James Nash who's with us today hello James
14: hello lovely
3: Uh, to be here is going to tell us uh, about this place James James yeah
14: where are we what can you see from where we are? What I can see is a most extraordinary room with kind of cloistered arches, a bit like being in a kind of Greek church, but it's got wonderful tiles over the ceiling and over the walls. And we're in the tiled hall cafe of um, Leeds Art Gallery, Leeds Library. And when I first came to Leeds in 1971, you could see it as a sort of cobwebby, um, dark little place that nobody had used for probably 60 years. It's completely beautiful. I mean, it's, um, it's part and parcel of a complex of buildings that have meant so much to me in my nearly 50 years of living in Leeds. These huge um, civic buildings, which are exuding kind of civic pride and Victorianness. That's I've just made up a word there, Peter, is that okay? So, so James, since you've mentioned coming here to Leeds 50 years ago. What, what brought you here? I came to do an MA. Um, I've been at Birmingham and um, I thought with MAs you do a thing for a year and then you, you disappear off. I was going to say another word then, but I, I got disappearing instead. You disappear off to do something else. And I came to Leeds and within three months... I felt almost wedded to the city, um, walking across Woodhouse Moor to lectures and seminars in the morning from where I lived in Royal Park Road. Um, This wonderful interconnected set of Victorian buildings, the old education offices, just part of the library where I had my medical before I became a teacher. These are all places that are are rich for me. And the town hall, um, which was completely black when I arrived in 1971. I mean, I think you, in terms of Leeds,
3: people tend to identify you with Headingley. And, um, yeah, what does Headingley mean to you as a place?
14: Headingley, Leeds 6, generally, um, is the place where I have lived for nearly 50 years, where I have been married innumerable times and lived in different houses, um, where I, Two of the schools I worked at were based um, and where a network of friends and family have lived and still live. It's, It's so connected and I travel around Leeds on my bike generally. So every cycle ride through Headingley and Leeds 6 and into Leeds itself is just packed with memories and packed with, oh, I remember when, or that was a great party, or there's the bear pit, you know, on Cardigan Road. It's all memories like that. Sometimes I cycle home a different way through this city that I've loved so long, as if to take it by surprise and see an older side and hear a distant song. This used to be a town of striking clocks that sounded the quarters, halves and hours. Newspaper sellers sold their wares in flocks to folk out shopping. There were flowers too. Rag and bone men rattled down the street. But now the city seems almost swept clean of historic sights and sounds I used to meet. Extinct, no longer witnessed, no longer seen. Perhaps one day, I'll take a corner fast, and ambush a leads, I thought was past.
3: And of course it's a sonnet.
14: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, It's a kind of addiction really, and um, I shouldn't be proud about this because I should be ringing somebody on a helpline because about 14 years ago I started writing sonnets Um, and I can't write anything else. I once said at a conference of neurosurgeons, um, I don't know what I was doing there, but I was, and I said to this group of um, neurosurgeons, I've written so many sonnets, I think I've reconfigured the neural pathways of my brain, which is quite a pretentious thing to say, and the neurosurgeons all nodded. They clearly thought I had reconfigured the neural pathways of my brain, so I, I find myself at a loss to write anything else.
2: Gonna see the river man Gonna tell him all I can About the band Feeling free If he tells me all he knows About the way his river flows Dance suppose it's meant
14: for me. Um, Nick Drake was um, somebody that I discovered, or he was there to be discovered, in 1968-69. He never really... Um, got the acclaim he deserved in his lifetime. He lived a very short and very productive life. He was brilliant, a genius, sort of Keatsian genius. Um, And I started listening to him again about 15 years ago. And I don't think um, a week goes by without me listening to either um, Five Leaves Left or is it Pink Moon? I think, yeah. And I can't not listen to he's a genius and the voice is lovely the words are lovely he's dealing with the stuff that poets and writers and artists always deal with which is love and mortality i love him it's related to me Um, i discovered him first in birmingham but i rediscovered him in leeds particularly um listened to him a lot over the last 30 years Um, he said things to me about um, loneliness, um, reconnecting, and I suppose I associate it with my coming out in 91 um, when I actually thought, come on, no shilly shouting! it's time to actually get this thing sorted. So Nick, Nick Drake is part of that whole coming out thing. I have no idea whether he was gay or straight, but there's something about his sensibility that appealed to me.
3: So we've come out of the snow and the rain, the kind of horizontal weather, and James Nash has brought us to another of his favourite places. So, James, tell us about where we are.
14: We're in the um, Victorian splendour of um, Leeds Town Hall, a place to which over the years I've brought many hundreds of children to wander around and scurry and look at and wonder but a place that I first saw when I came to Leeds in 1971, and it was totally black before it had been cleaned. And it seemed to represent a kind of northernness that I hadn't been aware of before. Um, and, you know, it's a favorite building. I cycle past it probably at once or twice a week on the way from Headingley and always give it a kind of little wave of my head but it's also the place where in I think 2006 um, David and I celebrated our civil partnership in um, one of the one of the big rooms Um, and you know 200 of our closest friends were here and it was an amazing experience actually being in this place, this favourite building, and seeing my big brothers on the front row, um, seeing my family there, seeing my friends there, um, in what I think is probably my favourite building in Leeds. The way you said 200 of my closest friends. (laughs) I I said that with a bit of irony. Um, Apparently I have about 2,000 friends on Facebook. I don't know who half of them are. Before
3: we go into the into the biggest room in the town hall. You've mentioned several times your teaching and uh, you still do a great deal of work with with young people and with children. I mean, this is important to you.
14: I think it's a kind of lifeblood, really. Um, I love teaching. I was a special needs teacher. I was deputy head of a high school. I work with challenging um, young people in challenging situations. And when I came back into being invited into schools and working with young people, it seemed to marry both parts of my life, the teaching part and the writing part, the creative part. And sharing some of that with youngsters, and often in primary schools, and I'm secondary trained, has been one of my greatest joys in the last 20 years.
3: Do you find it you can do something as a poet in schools that you couldn't do as a teacher?
14: Yeah, and I also think, as somebody who's done enormous amount of performing, that performing has actually made me a much um, more risk-taking teacher in the classroom and prepared to be much more myself in front of the kids than I probably was when I was Big Sir in a high school.
3: Well, we're in a place of performance the Town Hall in Leeds so we're going to move off into the Victoria Hall where I think they are setting something up for tonight so let's go and disturb them. I'm usually here for some kind of event, but when it's empty, it seems even more impressive. Do you
14: remember when you first came in and saw something here, James? Um, It was a concert, a classical music concert, probably about 1974, and I was sitting up in the seats just below the organ. Um, I think it was Russian music, it was completely fabulous, but it was also wonderfully intimate in a way that I wasn't expecting, as well as I'm having having the kind of sensation of being inside a wedding cake. It's just so ornate and extraordinarily over the top, but still beautiful.
3: I mean, if for people who don't know Leeds Town Hall, I wonder if you could
14: just describe a little on the hoof what you can see. Okay, we've got a huge organ, um organ pipes that seem to be decorated with gold leaf sort of A kind of leafy design, Um, a ceiling which is arched and carved and ornate, Um, pink marble columns which possibly is a paint effect Um, and little um, balconies um, issuing out into the hall and then a whole rows and rows and rows of seats for the classical concerts which are, I'm sitting in one now, far more comfortable than the seats they used to have. 40-plus years ago. It's fabulous.
3: There are words carved around, or painted, I should say, um, next to the pillars. Can you read some of them out, James?
14: Yeah, a trial by jury. So that's sort of Gilbert and Sullivan, I think. Um, there's, a, um, there's some Latin to make us all feel as if we know what we're talking about. Um, goodwill towards all men, presumably up there. So they're kind of... Um, The the equivalent of those um, Victorian um, pictures that people used to have above their bed which said things like trusting God um, or fear the Lord and have no other fear. They're kind of inspirational Victorian sayings, some in Latin to make you feel clever.
3: (laughs) You said a bit earlier on that the the town hall kind or these buildings encapsulated a
14: kind of northerness
3: and you're you're a southerner, if I'm...
14: I'm a complete southerner and I hope that didn't come over as being patronising, it wasn't meant to be at all, I mean I'm not ever going to be allowed to be a Yorkshireman, you have to be born here but if we talk about where I feel at home, I feel at home in London I feel at home in Cardiff where my father's family comes from, Cardiff um, but I f- am at home, I am home in Leeds and Yorkshire um, and for me that sort of um, northerness, Yorkshireness, is part of who I am now.
2: So you go down to the show Kid stuff Don't you know there's honey in for you Big stuff Let's take a ride
14: Okay, my last collection of sonnets was called A Bench for Billie Holiday. Um, She was um, an icon for me from the um, early 60s when I was um, a young boy growing up in West London. Um, And she's very urban. And she's very real and she was very brave and she was an activist in many many ways and she caught the attention of a young composer in the 1930s called leonard bernstein and he wrote um, the song big stuff which is not a great song she sang all the greatest songs um, she ra- sang all of porter and berlin and gershwin and she sang them most beautifully but i really like her version of big stuff which i think was recorded for decca um, in the early to mid-40s. Um, and I was in Harlem for my 70th birthday last year, and I always go to... If I am in that part of New York, I always think of Billy Holiday.
2: Don't you dare square well yes, of I try, I may be
9: alive
3: So, James, in terms of your poetry, you've, you've mentioned that you were a teacher, um, and you were obviously very involved in that, and you left for for, obvious, for for reasons that you've you've spoken about before. But in terms of the writing, where did that come from? When when did that start?
14: It started pretty much the moment I finished teaching. Um, I think, I I mean, the kind of teaching I did, I was a manager of a school for a long, long time, but before that I was working, um, I ran a crew uh, for children who had been excluded from schools. I worked um, as a special needs teacher and a head of year in comprehensive schools. And the kind of work I was doing used up huge amounts of creativity. Um, And I don't think it's a coincidence that the moment I stopped teaching was the moment that I started writing because I think it's the same kind of creativity and the same kind of energy um, that I was using up in the classroom and working with those challenging but often very adorable young people who, you know, one was able to do things with. Um, So I stopped teaching and it was like... um, Uh, cliches are crowding to the front of my mouth it was like a dam had burst Um, it was I had so much to write about it coincided with me coming out it coincided with me questioning uh, my past life my sexuality where I was going life felt adventurous but it also felt quite challenging and poetry Stories, too, and a little bit of journalism helped me kind of locate myself in what I still refer to as my new life, but my new life actually started 30 years ago. So writing found me a place to be. Um, I've talked about Leeds as being home, but writing is also home. Um, it's a place where which I inhabit, which gives me enormous amounts of pleasure and a feeling of connection to the world, the city and the countryside, the seaside. And people, audiences,
3: readers, connect very emotionally with your work. I think that's something that could be said about you.
14: I don't set out to make people cry. Um, I don't set out to make myself cry. Um, But sometimes I think, um, we were talking about Nick Drake earlier, he connects directly to the feeling and I think sometimes when one of my poems works it connects directly to the feeling sometimes that's humor because I use humor too um, but people I used to worry about grueling people in an audience but it's a bit like um, seeing a film which you go on a journey in a film and it can be and most sadly but It feels like the right thing. You trust the director and the actors to take you there. And I think if you get it right in your writing, you're taking your audience on a journey. It's not a fake journey. It's got truth and honesty in it. And at the end of it, they've had a little experience um, of the 30 seconds it takes to get in and out of a sonnet, probably 25 seconds. I think um, one, of the, um, one of the great discoveries in the last 15 years has been the East Coast, particularly in the East Riding of Yorkshire. Um, and I've um, discovered um, a kind of an interest in nature and in countryside and in the sea, which as a completely urban person I never realised I had. But there are still places um, in Leeds that I think... I'll just cycle out to Holbeck or I'll just have a little pedal around Beeston and just have a look at some of those buildings and try and discover some of the lives and stories that will have been lived there because, you know, there are some wonderful old school buildings. There are brilliant kind of parades of shops. There are little signs of um, Victorian industrialism. Um, They're all there um, and I would like to get out there and write about some of them this you, you you've written and talked very very uh, lyrically about the sea
3: and how much it means to you
14: yeah um it's, um we were at the seaside at uh, in Bridlington East Yorkshire most weekends um and apart from this Sunday morning when we would have been blown off from um, the cliffs at Flamborough um we normally would take the dog and go for a walk in the nature reserve at South Landing which is probably my favorite place in the whole world um, but instead there was a kind of half an hour of sunshine on Sunday afternoon and we whizzed down to Dane Dyke, which is a cove along from South Landing and we caught the sun we caught the sea which was wild um, and we caught the early early um, snowdrops and um, aconites and it was half an hour of complete heaven
3: So James, finally, in, you've been here 50 years, so you've been writing for, uh, for a long time and taking part in various literature events around the city. We now have a Leeds Lit Fest, which is two years old this year. So yeah, how does that feel to have a festival that unites all those small festivals?
14: I just think it's brilliant, um, because we have in Leeds um, a community of writers and a community of readers and they overlap. And I think a celebration of um, Leeds as a place and a place where literary things can happen, um, where people can meet and talk about books and writing and reading, is just a brilliant, brilliant thing. I mean, it's a wonderful city. It's got a rich cultural life. Um, I think it's fabulous that it's, um, it's in its second year. Last year was a blast. This year looks to be even better. Time
2: has told me you're right rare, rare fine trouble cure for a trouble mine.
14: This came as um, as part of a project where Um, Poets from Leeds were engaging with poets from Dortmund as part of a a brilliant project um, at Chapel FM. Um, And this was my introductory poem, and it'll probably be the introductory poem to my next collection. It's called City Stories. So, City, will you show me who you are and have been? Allow me to make a start, to walk your streets, to stop and stare, a poet's stethoscope to track your heart. I will map the places where you and I have met, the nighttime square, the morning bike ride, the gothic archway, the tower-block set with motorway booming at its side, the club, the bar, the bright green of park, the filth and beauty of these urban lives where some feast on carrion in the dark and hope is a train that never arrives. If you trust me enough... I will try to tell stories of renewal and tell them well. Wow.
11: The podcast you've just heard was made by Chapel FM, commissioned by Leeds Litfest, and funded by Leeds Inspired part of Leeds City Council. Each writer profile was recorded on location in an environment in or around the city of Leeds, chosen by the writer.
9: I think about the life I live A figure made of clay And think about the things I lost The things I gave away And when I'm in a certain mood I search the halls and look One night I found these magic words In a magic book Throw it away. Throw it away. Give your life. Give your
6: love.
9: Each and every day. And keep your hand wide open. Let the sun shine through. Cause you can never lose a thing. If it belongs. There's a hand that rocks the cradle, and a hand to help us stand with a gentle kind of motion as it moves across the land. And the hands unclenched and open, gifts of life and love it brings. So keep your hand wide open. If you need anything, throw it away, throw it away. Give your love, live your life each and every day, and keep your. Shine through. Cause you can never lose a thing if it belongs to you.
10: Love the commas, love the
1: apostrophes, love the colons and the question marks.
4: Love the words from East Leeds FM.
2: No l'età,
4: No l'età
2: per amarti. Nono l'età
6: per usci-